DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, Obviously, over the last few days, if you've been listening to the show, we've uh, started the show with discussions about the impact of the Supreme Court ruling on Roe, overturning Roe, and how it will play out in Georgia and other states across the country. And that remains a major story. Um, And we'll get to it at some point in the show today, talk about the uh, gubernatorial and Senate races in our conversations today and other news. Uh, but, But I think it's impossible to start a political show on the day after Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony in front of the January 6th committee, not to start uh, there. It was um, riveting. It felt like we were watching a moment in history. I'm sure there are people out there who, pro-Trumpers, who shrugged it all off, but I think um, for many, many people, it was a historic moment uh, to hear some of the things she had to say. But that's just my take on it. I want our panel to weigh in it. I've got exactly the right people uh, to do that. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with me today. So is Professor Andre Gillespie, uh, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory, and Rick Dent, vice president of Matrix Communications, they do government relations, political consulting work, and Rick has had a long history of working in uh, state uh, government. Back to Zell Miller's tenure as governor, before that, uh, working uh, with the governor in Alabama. So we're going to get to all three of them, and I think it's a great blend. We've got a j- political journalist, a p- professor of political science, and someone who works on campaigns. All of you have had a lot of experience over the years watching political news unfold. So my way of starting today is to say, just give me a brief take in general. What did you think as you watched Cassidy Hutchinson yesterday? Greg? So, Bill, I couldn't watch it live because I had agreed way back in February to uh, to speak at a panel that went on two hours just at the same time as the testimony. So I'm kind of stealing glances at my Twitter feeds, re- reading uh, Trusted Journalist, saying, oh, my gosh, what a, you know, what compelling testimony. And right after I got off, I called up our friend Patricia Murphy and said, hey, you know, what, what did she say about Georgia? <laughs> and she said, you know, very little about Georgia, um, if anything at all. Um, but my first reaction was, how did this not come out sooner? How many tell-all books have we seen? How many great reporters in Washington and New York have we seen uncover, you know, lots of um, – you know, revelations about Donald Trump. And yet, you know, for this to, for, for, for what uh, Cassidy said uh, to remain basically a secret until, until yesterday, it was stunning to me. Andra? So I am not surprised that to hear that Donald Trump throws things. I think a lot of us could have figured that that was possible. Um, I, you know, I, I thought the I thought it was compelling. I like Greg uh, couldn't watch that work uh, uh, at the standing meeting with my graduate students at one on Tuesdays, and so I um, watched it on C-SPAN later uh, that evening. 
Um, and, uh, you know, based on everything that I had seen kind of coming through sort of my email, feed, I was like, oh, this is a popcorn moment. And so I certainly sat with popcorn and, and, and watched it. Um, and not to take it lightly, because I think what she said was very serious. Um, I think, you know, she's come the closest to saying that there was a, a conspiracy going on. I think she provided a lot of credible evidence to that. There are some things that are just hearsay that are going to need to be corroborated by other people. And for that reason, I would actually characterize her if we're going to make Watergate analogies. She's more Alexander Butterfield and not quite John Dean yet. So I'm still waiting for the John Dean who, you know, and I think that's Pat Cipollini, right? And so it's, it's like, I, I, you know, there has to be somebody else who's going to have been in more rooms and was privy to more conversations. But I think she helped make that case and bring it forward by leaps and bounds yesterday. Uh, I, I want to comment on what you just said to make sure our, our listeners uh, are understanding the, the analogy. Of course, it was Butterfield, we've talked about it on the show, who uh, <laughs> surprised everyone in the country during the Watergate hearings by uh, testifying, oh, yes, Richard Nixon has recorded all of his conversations in the Oval Office. Those tapes still exist. And, of course, it was those tapes which eventually really led to his undoing. But he didn't have direct um, evidence of any of this. He just knew about the tapes. It was John Dean who was able to say there's a cancer on the presidency. So uh, I get that comparison. Um, Rick, give us your general thoughts. Well, you know, I had John Dean in my notes, too, and the doctor just took that away, so thanks for that. <laughs> um, I, 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 I was fascinated by what we missed on January 6th. I feel like there was a play going on, and we never got to the final act. Can you imagine what would have happened if President Trump made it to the Capitol? It's extraordinary to even think about that. And I was reading a story about uh, Secret Service logs on that day and how close he came to going to the Capitol. It would have been an extraordinary moment. We may have seen the arrest of a president of the United States. You know, they talked about invoking the 25th Amendment, uh, Congress having to vote on that. I mean, it is just mind-blowing. The, the only other thing... Um, that I was thinking about at the time was we may be desensitized by Donald Trump after six mm -hmm. years. I mean, when you think about here he is in the car, maybe choking his secret service driver while his buddies are lining up to get pardoned, that might not even crack the top five for Donald Trump in terms of crazy over the last six years. So uh, just, again, it was just extraordinary. I, I do think um, it, it's it's really important to make the point that that very vivid and dramatic incident that she described about uh, Trump insisting that it, the Secret Service driver take him to the Capitol, uh, the, the driver refusing, Trump trying to grab the steering wheel, uh, she did not witness that. That secondhand, essentially hearsay uh, testimony, and the Secret Service has put out an official statement alleging that it didn't happen at all. Um, I don't think that's going to shut down concerns about whether, in fact, Trump was that out of control, because clearly, Greg Bluestein, there were things in her testimony that resonated because they seemed so Trump-like. For most, uh, uh, specifically, um, his anger that the crowd at the Ellipse wasn't big enough, that they needed to let everyone who was outside of the Ellipse 
uh, the staging area in the Secret Service saying, we're not going to do it, uh, Mr. President. They've got to go through the magnetometers. They're carrying weapons, which they won't surrender, so they're not coming in. We know, we know how obsessed Trump was with crowd size, so that rang true. And the fact that he raged rings true as well, because we've seen that in him publicly, too. And on social media. Uh, you know, I didn't live through the, the Nixon era, but what strikes me as one of the big differences is that so much in the Nixon era was secret. You know, it was, it was undercover um, from the tapes to his behavior behind the scenes. But with Donald Trump, we've seen so much of these characteristics live and in person at rallies, on social media, in TV interviews, all of it, right? We know he, he's angry about crowd size. Uh, we know, we heard ourselves for our own with our own ears, how he tried to overturn George's election with that phone call to Trump, uh, to Raffensperger, I should say, uh, and other efforts he took to undermine the election results here. You know, so, so we've heard all that. And, you know, and that does also speak to the uh, desensitization of, of this all, too, is because, it, you know, it's hard to shock us now after all that we've been through for the last six years. All right, so let's turn this and talk about its impact here in Georgia, not just Cassidy Hutchinson, although that certainly so far has been uh, possibly the most dramatic testimony. Rick Dent, you're a longtime uh, uh, political professional. Uh, To what extent do you think all of these revelations are going to have any kind of impact on the Georgia candidates who have been... uh, uh, have stuck with Trump, have been aligned with Trump all along. A lieutenant governor candidate like uh, Burt Jones and others who have stayed in the Trump camp. It, is this going to have any impact on them at all? You're probably not going to like my answer. I think it's not going to impact one single vote in the state of Georgia in November. I think at the end of the day, the, the economy and the kitchen table issues and the record of the Democrats is going to be oh, such an anchor nationally. Uh, I, I just don't think January 6th is strong enough to overcome any of that. Andra? Um, I I mostly agree with Rick. I think the question will be, do we find other evidence of people being directly involved? And I think the bigger issue is not today with the rate of support, which I'm not sure that they do, um, especially for those who are in pretty safe seats. Um, And even if they lose, it might not erode enough for that to matter. Um, But where I think it could possibly matter is I think, one, at least as far as the criminal case in Fulton County, um, Bonnie Willis looks like, you know, she's not on a fool's errand by pursuing this case. Um, I think that there are lots of reasons. And I think that if more evidence comes out that directly ties Georgia actors to the conspiracy in palpable ways that, you know, there will be something to talk about. Um, and there may be some ways that people might be a little too distracted to kind of continue their races. But barring that, I think that people's preferences are pretty fixed at this point. Um, and this is only reinforcing what people already believed. So Democrats already, you know, were opposed to Trump, thought this is seditious. And those who are aligned with Trump are ignoring this and see the whole thing as a witch hunt. So, Greg, let's just take that one race. Let's just take the lieutenant governor's race, Charlie Bailey, uh, the Democratic candidate running against Burt Jones. Would, would you imagine if you're Charlie Bailey's campaign, you would try to take 
various moments, perhaps, from the January 6th uh, uh, revelations, especially those relate, that relate specifically to Georgia and the slate of electors, the fake slate of electors, uh, and use those against him? Or do you think Rick makes a point that maybe those aren't going to be uh, particularly compelling for general election voters? Look, I mean, Charlie Bailey's already doing that, right? Uh, and even in his victory speech last week, he, he mentioned Burt Jones's role as a fake elector, which I think if you gave uh, Burt Jones a truth serum, he would, he would say what a mistake that was that he was involved in that, in that bizarre plot. Um, but this is a question I get more than any others. You know, I got it in Savannah on Monday. I got it at a conference on Tuesday. Is, is will the January 6th be, um, you know, be a prevailing factor? Will the abortion debate, will... Well, economy, and I always go back to, you know, January, February of 2020, when the national narrative was that the election would be a referendum on impeachment, right? That was the biggest story. And then by March, it was not the biggest story. By March, it was the coronavirus pandemic. And by the summer, uh, you add uh, the racial justice protest to the mix and, and public safety and woke cancel culture on the, on the GOP side. And so a lot could happen. Um, we already know that Republicans want to make this race a referendum on Joe Biden and the economy and inflation and energy prices. Uh, and we already know Democrats, you know, they have their response to that, but um, they prefer to focus on GOP embrace of, of expansion of gun rights and of, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade and whatever else happens in the Supreme Court uh, over the next few months. So, um, you know, that's likely where the race will hinge, but we'll see. A, lo- a lot can happen. So um, why don't we stick with you for just a minute to kick us off on on this part of the conversation. We've got the January 6th hearing, but we've also, of course, as already been mentioned, got Fonnie Willis's special grand jury uh, that's doing its work right now. And a name has surfaced. Tamar Hallerman, who's really wired in (laughs) to that grand jury, is now reporting that a name that we started, some of us started hearing this just in the last few days, Alex Holder, documentary filmmaker who had unusual access to Trump and the White House during the time uh, that he was really making his allegations about uh, the uh, fake election, um, is now not only going to apparently appear before the January 6th committee, but Holder is coming to Atlanta and will be talking to the Fonnie Willis special grand jury and apparently according to what Tamar is learning, um, he may have footage of uh, uh, Trump talking to Brian Kemp and others about Georgia, which would be totally new information, Greg. Yeah, and that's what we still don't know. I mean, we've heard the the Trump calls to Brad Raffensperger, but this is why this testimony and, frankly, Brian Kemp's testimony uh, in July, it'll be videotaped, will be so important, so crucial, um, because Kemp has no little reason to hold back, I'll put it that way, um, after Trump put him at the very top of his revenge list. And so we haven't really heard, um, you know, uh, Brian Kemp candidly speaking about the pressure that Donald Trump placed on him. And this documentary footage, uh, which the New York Times reported, involves um, Trump calling, essentially calling Kemp and other state officials stupid, which is what he said at rallies, too, so that's not exactly huge news, but uh, other parts of that footage could be huge news. And another indication that Bonnie Willis is not, she's a, a lot of blockbuster witnesses, uh, including um, uh, several Democrats who, who have recently testified. I, I do want to correct what, what I said. Uh, Holder 
in an interview with CNN, suggested he had footage of Trump discussing uh, Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger. We know he talked to Raffensperger. We don't know whether he ever talked to Brian Kemp. And Rick, that's one of the reasons it's going to be interesting uh, that uh, that Kemp is going to be testifying in front of the special grand jury. Yes, and in fact, I've seen some um, right-wing Republicans are using that as an excuse to campaign against Brian Kemp to say, look, he's not one of us, and you can't trust trust him, and do not go out and vote for this man. I know Debbie Dewey has been pushing that argument for quite some time. One thing I want to add about all of this is all of us on this call live and breathe this stuff every single day. Regular people do not have that luxury. They're just trying to get through the work day, pick up their kids in the evening at daycare, get supper on the table, get them bathed, get the homework done, 10 o'clock at night, pay some bills until the money runs out. They don't have the luxury that we have. And so this kind of stuff is interesting and crucial, but for the regular voter, it does not impact their life at all. And in the end, in November, there is something that is hitting them every single day. When they fill up the gas tank, mortgage rates, car hikes, food, everything is hitting them every single day. That's their experience. The experience about Fulton County and January 6th and all of that, it's not there for them. So, Andra, I suspect that's one of the reasons we say we don't know that voters will be impacted at all about a Cassidy Hutchinson and the Georgians who supported uh, Trump, even when they learn about what what he did and how far he went in trying to subvert our democracy. Uh, those issues uh, uh, that Rick just laid out, the day to day issues are going to matter more. Yeah, I mean, what we haven't seen yet is uh uh, voters penalized the Republican Party um, for the fact that it was a president under their party banner, right, you know, who organized uh, this at, uh, alleged act of sedition. So, um, you know, I think it remains to be seen whether or not, it, it, you know, as the investigation collects more evidence to kind of show how deeply Trump was involved in this, whether or not that would actually have a short-term effect on, on, on the Republican Party's chances. But right now, I think we have to look at the fundamentals and look at the ways that the Republican Party appears to be poised to make gains in this election cycle, despite the fact um, that this evidence is, is, is coming out. And, you know, part of it is structural. Part of it is uh, the other party is not particularly popular right now. Um, and for the reasons that Rick has, has, has stated, um, and, you know, what we know historically about what happens to the incumbent parties or in midterm elections like that, that that matters. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, both sides are, are sort of playing politics as normal, even though these are very abnormal times. And so we haven't been sort of shaken to actually mm-hmm. deal with this. And I think people will compartmentalize the sedition issues and say, well, that's a an institution's issue of shoring that up that doesn't necessarily have to do with my representative, with my senator, with, you know, my state's governor. Greg, before I move on, did I do did I miss something? Has do we know of any kind of phone call between Brian Kemp and Donald Trump during uh, the, the period that he was trying to overthrow the election? 
Oh, we do, and and and, and we've reported on um, several of them, but but the big one we've reported on was the morning of Trump's um, first post-election, post-November uh, rally. It was uh, in Valdosta in December, I think it was December 5th of 2020, where um, where the former president called up Kemp uh, uh, and, and encouraged him to call a special session and take all sorts of action, and Kemp was still distraught over the death of Kelly Leffler's young aide, who was also his his daughter's um, boyfriend, and um, you know, basically said, "Hey, I, I've got, I've, uh, you know, I've got other things to deal with right now. I hear you, but I've got other things to deal with." And it was a very emotional call, from what I was told. Okay, I, I, I'm sorry that I um, wasn't thinking about that. I'm glad you corrected me on on that. Why don't we do this? Let's take our first break of the show right now. But when we come back, um, I want to start by talking about. Um, this, what apparently has been in the last year, an enormous shift of voters from one party to the other. I want to talk about what it means and what's going on. This is Political Rewind. <music> Professor Andre Gillespie. AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein and uh, political consultant and the vice president of Matrix Communications, Rick Dent, join us for the show today. Rick, I want to start with a story you pointed out. You were the first to point out uh, to me. Uh, the AJC has published it, but it's an Associated Press story based on a study they did of voter registration patterns across the country. Um, and I want to just read a, a little bit from that AP story. A political shift is beginning to take hold across the U.S. as tens of thousands of suburban swing voters who helped fuel the Democratic Party's gains in recent years are becoming Republicans. More than one million voters across 43 states have switched to the Republican Party over the last year. But nowhere is the shift more pronounced and dangerous for Democrats than in the suburbs. Rick? Uh, this has to be a, a huge wake-up call for Democrats, even in Georgia, because you can make the argument that the gains that Democrats have made in the last four years have been because of the leakage of suburban voters, especially white suburban women, moving over to the Democratic side. When um, Governor Perdue beat Governor Barnes in 2002, I remember telling people that I didn't think Democrats would come back in Georgia until 2030. But what happened is that Trump appeared, and I think he had an unnatural effect on suburban voters, especially white suburban women, and unnaturally pushed them to the Democratic side to a place where they weren't ready to go yet, but they were willing to do it. And now that we have lifted Trump out of the way, so to speak, I think they are now shifting back to where they naturally feel more comfortable. And when you throw on top of that comfort, you know, the charges that the Democrats are the party of woke, you've got the Biden problem, you've got the economic problems, I think even the uh, AP uh, said that the COVID overreach was pushing them as well. I think you're seeing a reset where they are moving back naturally where they're the most comfortable. And so the question becomes, 
what can Democrats do about it, and is this going to be lethal to them in November? Another problem for them to deal with. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that we need to look at in terms of how we're defining party identification. So here the mm-hmm. AP is looking a lot at registration, um, even though that doesn't seem like that's 100% the case here, right, because there's some states, one state in particular that was mentioned in the article where they're like, we see more Republicans here. It's like, but I know the state doesn't have party registration, so uh, I don't know how you're, how you're actually getting at that. If we look at Gallup, for instance, um, and we look at how Gallup is, is, is tracking party identification, including those needs of independence. But if you probe them a little bit more, they'll tell you they tend to be more Democratic or than Republican or vice versa. Uh, the numbers are pretty evenly matched. It speaks to a mood. Um, it may also speak to some strategy. There may be people who are strategically switching party registration to vote in primaries and, and that's not their sincere place. And they may go back, even though I think that's a really small portion. Um, of the voters that are at hand. And um, I, I think that th- this suggests that the parties are pretty evenly matched. And I think the lesson or the takeaway here is that the politics of personality, um, while they are compelling, are not the be-all, end-all. So I think that Democrats thought that they could just run on, hey, we're not Trump, we're not anything like him, and that that was going to be their calling card. That's not particularly effective. Um, and I think it's also important to realize that for Republicans, this is, these are not people who are just blindly following Donald Trump all the time. They have other reasons uh, to support some of those fundamental reasons, uh, you know, uh, uh, are, are, are things that Democrats need to consider. So if people are concerned about crime, for instance, um, you, then Democrats need to be aware of that. And, and they need to think of and temper how they propose crime reduction policies and, 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 and balance that with justice. Similarly, I think you also need to be aware of how much people can tap into resentment. So whether that's resentments over COVID or resentments about race and gender changes in the United States um, and figure out a way to speak to that in a way that's compelling in a way that's not necessarily alarming as well. And I think that Republicans need to also make sure that they are, you know, being sensitive to the concerns that folks have, uh, you know, about them playing to, to stereotypes and bigotry. So, Andra, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the questions about how they gathered some of this research. They mentioned Atlanta and Augusta in uh, their reporting, and we don't have party registration here. So the question is, on what basis did they decide that there's been this massive uh, shift in Georgia? So I'm glad you mentioned that. But but at the same time, Greg, um, we know that uh, President Biden's approval numbers are just couldn't be well. They can get worse, but they're pretty bad right now. I think the real clear average is under forty percent approval at this point. It's certainly uh, conventional wisdom. It may not turn out to be true that Republicans are more likely to recapture the House, um, and and that uh, and that Democrats are going to have a hard time in a lot of races across the country. So I wonder if the registration story. Uh, lines up in any way with what we know about uh, the difficulties Democrats are having making their case right now. Yeah, I mean, look, it's difficult to detect this change in Georgia because of what um, Rick and Professor Gillespie said, which was there's no party registration. And, and also, there's no marquee race in the Democratic side. There's no big draw to, to get primary voters because Stacey Abrams is uncontested and Rafael Warnock was essentially uncontested. Um, and so there was a, there were some crossover votes, but that doesn't hide the fact 
that Democrats do face a huge challenge in the suburbs. And it was interesting that the story came out right around the same time the Supreme Court ruling came out, because that's exactly what um, Democrats hope will re-engage, uh, re-mobilize, re-energize a lot of the suburban voters, particularly the, the, the white women um, who used to vote Republican, um, fled to the Democratic Party in the Trump era, and now have, you know, might be fleeing back to the GOP, might be going back to the GOP without Trump on the ballot. With, with that in go ahead, Andra. I mean, I also think it's really important for us to point out that uh, white women aren't as democratic as, as, as people claim that they are. My friend Jane Jun at the University of Southern California would want me to say this right now. So white women overall are vote Republican. Um, and so the only sector that votes uh, Democratic are college-educated white women, and that's been by a small margin according to, to, to exit poll data. So, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, white voters are voting Republican just, you know, isn't a, we shouldn't be shocked by that. Um, and, and, and so I think it's really important for us to, to note that. Okay. Well, so let's take that and move it forward in terms of the gubernatorial race, uh, right now, uh, Rick, if you're, if one of the contingencies you're, or you're looking to, uh, engage is in fact, uh, white women, I, and actually, I think this applies to more than white women, but, I mean, if suburban voters are important, we should talk about it. Um, uh, the Kemp campaign, uh, according to Greg Bluestein, has uh, intensified, and we can see it in advertising, they've intensified their effort to attack Stacey Abrams as being a defund the police candidate and, and warning uh, Georgians that uh, that they will not be safe, that public safety will be jeopardized if she becomes governor. Rick, um, talk about that. Uh, well, number one, uh, just from a consulting standpoint, I, I think it's a really good attack for the Republicans to launch. Um, your friend and my friend James Carville has been ranting for months now that Democrats have a branding po- uh, problem that we look like we're for open borders, defund the police, trans athletes, which have nothing to do with the daily lives of of regular Americans. Um, And then what Republicans are playing on is, again, that unfair idea that generally Democrats are weak on crime (laughs) and that unfair assumption that African-American Democrats are even weaker on crime than regular Democrats. And what you're going to see in that race is that fight that I've mentioned before. The Kemp campaign argument is going to be Stacey Abrams is not like you. She's not one of us. And and Stacey Abrams' comeback, and you can see it in her advertising, is I'm going to bring people together because I am one of you. And that's really going to be the fight in that race. But this is one of the reasons why Stacey Abrams put her name on the line, her political on the line, to try to get Charlie Bailey nominated as lieutenant governor, because um, not only does he bring, uh, you know, a bit of diversity to this slate as the only white male on the Democratic slate, but I think more importantly, Democrats, he's, he's a former prosecutor who's going after gang criminals. And so it, it ostensibly should make it a little harder for Republicans to paint all Democrats as soft on crime. But of course, it won't blunt the attacks. You know, the challenge for Stacey Abrams is that you know, in 2020, we saw David Perdue attack John Ossoff as a defund the policer. 
and all that, and there was no evidence to it. I mean, Ossoff, we, we could flatly claim that it was a lie because Ossoff had never said anything to, to, of that sort. The challenge for Abrams is that in an interview with CNN, um, she did indicate, you know, they only it's only as part of the interview, but she did indicate she wanted to shift some resources away um, from police if she was, she was pressed to do so. She since elaborated that she's not a su- supporter of the defund the police campaign uh, in any form or fashion, but at the same time, it will not stop Republicans from continuing to make that a key attack line, even though now she's even said that she wants to um, give certain law enforcement officers a pay raise. Yeah, but Greg, it's it's interesting that, that the Republicans have come back at her and called that uh, disingenuous. I'm not exactly sure what the language is, but I think you can tell me they've attacked her on that proposal, right? They said it's a campaign gimmick. It's election year desperation, and more broadly, that she's just throwing a lot of money at all sorts of issues, right? She's talked about giving teachers a significant pay raise, about expanding Medicaid, which would cost between 200 to $400 million, according to different estimates, and, and, and now $180 million to give corrections officers and some state patrol officers and others um, a pay raise between ten dollars to $13,000. Um, so, yeah, they're just saying that she's it's a bunch of pie in the sky, and even – some of them are even kind of comparing her to David Perdue, which is saying, you know, you're just promising the moon without being able to um, uh, to execute on those plans. Which in some ways, Andre, is fascinating because one of the major campaign planks on which Brian Kemp ran for governor the first time around was a big, big increase for teachers, $5,000. And as governor, he has given away money left and right uh, uh, in pay raises for different uh, state employees uh, and, uh, and other money that he stole out. So there is something fascinating about the uh, claim that she's just uh, uh, throwing money out there to win an election. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I'm not surprised um, that uh, people would try to use that ploy. Um, I think to, to, to Rick's larger point, the idea of trying to portray Stacey Abrams as soft on crime is a time-honored uh, uh, attack that's been used against black politicians before. So when Tom Bradley ran for mayor of Los Angeles, right, they said he was soft on crime. Mm. He's a former cop. Um, so, um, I, you know, what's different this time is that usually, especially when you're running for a really high-profile office, a state-level type of election, we've seen uh, black candidates kind of pivot um, to try to uh, be uh, to demonstrate their bona fides by saying that they're really tough on crime or that they would be pro death penalty. That's not where the Democratic Party is right now. And so a nuanced answer that she has about defunding, which isn't abolition, right? She's talking about taking some functions away from police that they're not particularly good at, like dealing with folks who are having mental health challenges and making sure that you shore up the social work uh, sphere to be able to address those issues. Uh, is, um, you know, basically to say that, you know, you can paint her with a broad brush and basically say that she's the second coming of Cori Bush or Ilhan Omar. She's not those people. But, like, that doesn't matter kind of, you know, when you're swinging mud. Yes, but Rick, as a political consultant, you know full well that defund the police fits easily on a bumper sticker, whereas I'm not really talking about defunding um, the police. I'm talking about shifting resources yeah, someplace else, right? <laughs> uh, 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 that's exactly what I was thinking about. There's that concept, if you're, if you're explaining, you're losing. And unfortunately, in the age of six-second sound bites, that's exactly the problem. What I mean is X, Y, Z, A, B. It, it's, it's tough to overcome 
because we have a, a, a voters now who have no attention span whatsoever. You know, Greg, I mean, it's interesting because um, what what Rick just said about the six second soundbite. I think about the soundbite that the uh, the camp ad uses against Abrams, saying, "I, you know, I yeah, defund the police." It's from I think a CNN interview, and you can see the questioner sort of leading her toward that answer. And there's even a brief moment in the ad itself where Abrams kind of pauses for a second before saying anything at all. It, it isn't as if, in reality, she uh, came on the air and said, I'm glad we're here to talk about defunding the police. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this was not something she set out to say. And look, this is, a, this is a, another, it, it's, I guess I could say challenge for Stacey Abrams, and it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's just she never answers the same question the same way. Like Brian Kemp, you'll ask him, you know, about Donald Trump, and he'll say the exact same thing 30 different times, right? I've heard it so many different <laughs> times. Um, but Stacey Abrams, she'll, 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 she'll answer questions in different ways, and she's not exactly uh, a scripted candidate. And, and she doesn't believe in, you know, your traditional talking points in a very in a, in a broad sense. So um, that will present challenges to her. So sometimes, you know, as we've seen several times in this campaign, um, you know, her own work, she'll, she'll, she'll have a little gaffe or she won't say things the, the, the exact way that she wants to say them. And she'll realize that almost as soon as she says it. But then Republicans have that soundbite to use the rest of the campaign. Uh, before we take a break, Greg, I want to go to one more story that you uh, filed for the AJC. Um, it's, a, it's an attack Democrats, uh, in, I think it's a legislative Democrats, are using against uh, Brian Kemp. The headline of it is Georgia Democrats blast Kemp over, quote, heartbreaking baby formula shortage. Well, we know that uh, President Biden has been getting criticized left and right by Republicans for not doing enough to address the shortage. How are Democrats using that against Kemp in Georgia? Yeah, this is Democrats trying to turn the tables on the governor. And in part, it's because the AJC reported a few weeks ago that the state health department essentially destroyed um, gallons of formula because it, it, you know, because of uh, time delays and safety precautions. Um, you know, it, it basically are following um, guidance from the federal Department of Agriculture um, from a few years ago to destroy it. But at the same time, there is this huge shortage, and um, and Democrats are are keen to blame the Kemp administration for destroying that and blame blame him for not doing more um, to to better this uh, to to improve this shortage. You know, because even even though there is nationwide shortage, Georgia ranks among um, the states with the worst shortage of baby uh, formula. So now this is part and parcel to look. We talk about the economy and, and social issues, cultural issues like like abortion and like guns, but this is part of the Democratic sort of counterattack on the economic issues. It's, we're hearing Stacey Abrams say she would enact a state sales gas tax sales suspension throughout the entire year if she were governor right now. And now we're hearing Democrats say, hey, it's the state that's not doing enough to improve the scarcity of, of key products. The, the baby formula attack is really the opposite of the defund the police attack in that when you say defund the police, the voter instantly knows what you're talking about. In this case, with the baby formula, when you have to explain your attack to the voter to try to connect, it's back to that same idea of if you're explaining, you're losing. I just don't think voters get this, this attack. And I loved the Kemp response, which was, ah, 
Biden did it, and Stacey loves him. So uh, <laughs> this, this, this attack, I, I just, I just don't see it working. Well, it's important to point out that this did not come from the, the, the Abrams campaign. I think this was a group of Democrats in the legislature looking for something uh, they could use. Andre, you want to get a last word in before we have to take a break? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at this point, like, the supply chain issues are a business issue. Um, it is, I mean, you know, the FDA is involved, but this is, 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 is less of a governmental issue. But yet Joe Biden owns this issue because it's been perceived as national. And the attempt to try to pin another executive to this particular issue at this point, when it appears like he owns it for better, when Biden owns it for better or for worse, I think it's going to fall flat in the ways that Rick has, has already said. All right, we got to get to our final break of the show. More when we come back on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Greg Blustein, for months we've known that however beloved Herschel Walker is by many, many people in Georgia who followed his football career, he carries a lot of baggage uh, into his general election race for U.S. Senate. And I want to play the audio of an ad that strikes me as being the beginning. It serves almost as a template of what we imagine will be a series of ads coming forward in the months ahead. Essentially, it's called Herschel Walker versus the Truth. Let's listen. It's Herschel Walker versus the Truth. Herschel Walker says, I run a company that has about a little over 800 employees. I have over 800 employees. 800 employees. We have about 800 employees. But the truth is, official loan documents show Walker's company has just eight employees. That's right, just eight employees. Is Herschel Walker really ready to represent Georgia? Greg, I suspect there are a lot of Herschel Walker versus the truth ads getting ready to be put out there by uh, the uh, uh, Warnock campaign. Yeah, and look, Warnock has some of the best ad smiths in the nation. Uh, And we saw that in 2020. We're seeing that again right now. We're going to see a lot more from his campaign. Um, And the challenge for them, you know, just like we talked about the challenges for for Stacey Abrams, the challenge for them is that, you know, we're – just like with Trump, people are sort of desensitized to it, right? Um, we have reported uh, since even before Herschel Walker got in the race about his lies, exaggerations, violent behavior, erratic behavior, um, blunders, myths, truths on the campaign trail, you know, bizarre statements, you name it, right? And uh, for Raphael Warnock, it's, okay, is anyone shocked by this anymore, right? And the people who are going to vote for him are voting for him, the people who aren't going to vote for him are not going to vote for him. How do you reach, you know, how do you energize the people who are going to sit on the sidelines? Um, how do you handle that? And, and um, you know, Herschel Walker, meanwhile, can, can just kind of say, oh, that's the mainstream media going after me again. You know, they, they're all against me. Uh, fight, fight for me. I think ultimately this is going to come down to who has the best turnout operation. You know, I expect that this race is going to be reasonably close. Um, and so turnout's going to matter here. 
Um, I think, you know, I think for uh, most people, they probably already know who they're going to vote for in this particular race. Still, I think the question that I have about this is what other shoes are going to drop between now and November. So I think each individual revelation in and of itself isn't particularly compelling to, you know, change people's minds. But if Herschel Walker is a treasure trove of these kind of ads, um, if he continually makes errors and, like, we can talk about a new one, like, you know, every week, every couple of weeks, um, you know, I think the question will be what's the cumulative effect of, of, of all of these together and does it point to a general unfitness to serve that might actually be off-putting to those suburban voters, suburban white voters that uh, we were talking about in an earlier segment who just are like, I, I, you know, I, I, I love the football, but I can't do this. And, and Rick, thanks to you, we know that the Warnock campaign has a gazillion dollars that they can pour into advertising, just like Andre's talking about. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're spending a million dollars a week right now pushing out two truth ads about Herschel Walker. Uh, and I've made this point before on your show. One of the uh, great concerns that the Walker campaign should have is, is, again, not necessarily that Republicans will switch and vote for Warnock, but that Republicans will just skip this race because they can't hold their nose and do it. To give you an idea of the, you know, I keep talking about it's not about yards and feet, it's about inches in Georgia. And correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, there are a little more than 2,300 precincts in the state of Georgia. If just five people per precinct skip that race or move over, that's 11,000 votes, and you can win an election now in Georgia with 11,000 11, votes. Just ask President Biden. Exactly right. And look, even the most minute changes in voting patterns will, will affect this election. That's why you know, every single block of voters counts. And every so often I check in with Republican activists about Herschel Walker's um, latest, you know, the latest news. And every day there's something, right? Uh, it's hard to keep up. Um, and many of them say the same thing, which is, you know, they, they are disappointed. They are not huge fans. You know, the people who are paying close attention are not, they're not exactly enamored of, of Herschel Walker. But what they're, not, what they're planning to do is they're voting for a Republican Senate. They're not voting for him, right? And, and does that power overall with the entire electorate? Who knows? But does that overwhelm um, any concerns, uh, individual concerns folks have about Herschel Walker? Uh, we'll, we'll soon see. But I'll say this, and I've said it a million times. Raphael Warnock's campaign, Democrats, you know, are not taking Herschel Walker uh, lightly. And right now, I, you know, he might even be the front runner. You know, I saw my first Herschel Walker bumper sticker uh, the day before yesterday on a car driving down the street. And lest anyone wonder what the Walker campaign thinks is the most important strength of their candidate, it's in the shape of a football. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on just for a couple minutes. We're, we don't have a lot of time for this, but uh, I do want to get to it. Greg, at least seven, and, and I, don't want to, I want to be careful about the numbers. There may be more, but at least seven district attorneys in the state of Georgia and mostly in metropolitan areas, although not necessarily, have said they are not going to prosecute uh, when and if the Georgia abortion law uh, takes effect. The Atlanta City Council uh, voted uh, last week to make uh, uh, going after people who violate the law a very low priority. 
Uh, Andre Dickens has said that, and the and the acting police chief have said we're concerned about gangs, drugs, and cops. Um, what is what does this mean in terms of how law enforcement and government will interact once this law, as we suspect it will, is is put into effect? Yeah, I think this is the really the next key battleground over abortion rights in Georgia. It's going to be how local officials. And we're keying on those prosecutors. And at least, you know, you're right, at least seven have signed on the letter. Uh, we're doing a, a kind of a deeper look at it to try to survey all prosecutors in Georgia to see where they stand. A lot of them are also saying they're going to take um, these, these potential violations of Georgia's anti-abortion law on a case-by-case basis. Um, so some are kind of hedging uh, on enforcement. But um, and it's not just the DAs. It's police departments that are going to deprioritize mm-hmm. investigations into this. It's... Um, uh, officials, uh, whether they be mayors or in the case of, of uh, the attorney general's race, Jen Jordan, the, the Democratic nominee for the AG, said she won't use any of the office's resources on defending mm-hmm. the anti-abortion law. So we're going to see sort of uh, acts of defiance, I guess is the way they put it. Basically, Democrats seeing that they're the lo- uh, local and state Democrats seeing themselves at the last line of defense for abortion rights in Georgia. Um, and it's going to be really pivotal how this plans out. And I asked Chris Carr's um, office yesterday about their response to all these prosecutors who say they're not going to enforce it. And of course, there is um, prosecutorial discretion. Um, but uh, his spokeswoman said, quote, it's a dereliction of duty for district attorneys to preemptively pick and choose which laws they will enforce. It undermines the rule of law and erodes our system of self-governance. So, Rick, um, there was actually there are like more than 80 uh, district attorneys across the country. You've signed a form, basically a form letter uh, and, and some of the Georgia DAs are part of that letter in which they all say we're not going to enforce this law uh, in our states. Um, and, and, and they say at the beginning of that letter, some of us are not pro-choice, but we just think this is not the right priority for us. Look, I'm old enough to remember the Supreme Court phrase, all deliberate speed, when it came to integrating the nation's schools. I'm not in any way suggesting that the United States is going to push back on abortion rights like they did with integration, which went on for decades. But at the same time, it's absolutely clear that the pro-choice side is going to use every legal remedy they can to slow things down. You've got the towns and cities and prosecutors stepping forward and saying they're not going to participate in this uh, as well. I guess we could even end up having sanctuary cities for abortion. Is that a, a possibility? Is that a thing? Um, so it's a long way before your thing is going to be settled. Andre, I really would love to give you just, I know we only have about 30 seconds, but I'd love to hear your take on this. Well, I mean, this the first thing I would think about is if there are no abortion clinics in these places, then this non-prosecutorial stance is a little bit moot. This seems like this is overlooking sort of like male, like getting abortion pills through the mail. Um, and so, as, and that is the next fight that any abortion activists have already identified as, you know, in their steps of eliminating abortion altogether. All right. Andre Gillespie uh, gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Thank you so much uh, for being here, Rick Dent, Greg Bluestein. Another terrific conversation among you, and I'm so glad you could be part of uh, the show today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks to all of you out there uh, for joining us for Political Rewind. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay 
healthy. See you all tomorrow.